It's Tuesday, January 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Oscar noms are out, and Joker is leading the pack with 11 nominations, including Best Picture. And despite efforts to get more diversity into the Oscars, in the major categories, it was a list of mostly white nominees, and women were altogether left out of the Best Director category. Brent Lang, executive editor for film and media at Variety, joins us to discuss the nominations and who got snubbed. Next, in the music industry, everyone is worried about getting sued, and music copyright lawsuits could be scaring away new hits. After a court ruled that blurred lines infringed on Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up, more artists and record companies are consulting with musicologists and even getting insurance to protect them in case they might get sued. Amy Wang, music business editor at Rolling Stone, joins us for more. Finally, some Generation Xers are starting to hit their midlife crisis. And while most people think a midlife crisis is about getting a new sports car, getting a trophy wife, or just some bad behavior, Generation X is getting into yoga, meditation retreats, and keto diets. Andrea Peterson, health reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the virtuous midlife crisis. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Ford versus Ferrari. Peter Chernin, Jano Topping, and James Mangold, producers. The Irishmen, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Jane Rosenthal, and Emma Tillinger-Koskoff. Joining us now is Brent Lang, executive editor for film and media at Variety. Thanks for joining us, Brent. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the Academy Awards. The nominees have come out. Joker, which is the R-rated blockbuster film, topped the list of nominations. I think they had 11 nominations total. But as in years past, one of the other big stories to come out of this is the lack of diversity among some of the nominees and the exclusion of female filmmakers completely this time around. Brent, tell us a little bit about how the nominations shaped up this year. I think that there was a lot of concern, a lot of hand-wringing, some outrage, frankly, about the lack of diversity in the major categories. Oscars historically have not done a great job of recognizing female filmmakers. They've only nominated five female filmmakers in their 92-year history, and this year was no exception. Greta Gerwig, Melina Matsukas, Lulu Wang directed some of the most acclaimed films of the year, and yet they were shut out from the director's race. So I think people are upset that that happened, that that tradition continued. I think they're kind of alarmed a little bit. And it comes, well, there's a wider debate going on in the industry uh, in the wake of the Me Too movement, the Time's Up organization being founded, and some actual real accomplishment, because this was, when you look at the numbers, a, a record year for women behind the camera. So it's unclear why that wasn't reflected in the nomination. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things is that they were supposed to have taken care of this almost. The Academy made strides to get more judges in there, more people that were going to supposedly nominate other actors and, and other films and things like that. And it's still a few years on. It didn't really bear out yet. Well, it's, it seems like a step back, right, from last year where you had five people of color who were in the major acting categories. This year, there's only one performer of color, Cynthia Erivo, nominated. And as you said, the Academy did take steps to kind of diversify its ranks after 2015 and 2016, where there were two consecutive 
years of all white acting nominees and the hashtag Oscar so white yeah. sort of trending on Twitter that they really tried to grow their ranks to diversify their ranks. And yet this seems like something of a step back. So I think that people are puzzled and I think they're upset and even maybe angry. Let's talk a little bit about Joker. It's the second time that a comic book slash superhero movie, whatever you want to call it, it's in that genre, has been nominated for best film. And Joker itself had kind of this roller coaster ride. You know, it had some controversy at first. It was all over with the reviews. I mean, people loved it and hated it. But yet here it is, the leading movie with 11 nominations. It's a real turnaround for Joker because, as you said, it was a very polarizing film. There were a lot of people who felt it was an irresponsible film, that it was even going to incite violence because of its depiction of mental illness. It's a film that was very clearly influenced by Taxi Driver. And yet, you're right, when nominations were announced, it was the most nominated film with 11 nods. So really kind of a staggering moment for Joker. And it's also kind of a coming of age for the superhero genre, which is a genre that the Oscars have historically ignored. This is only the second comic book movie to have ever been nominated for Best Picture. Last year, Black Panther became the first. So I think that's a pretty historic moment, too, for the industry. Netflix, I think they picked up 24 nominations, the most of any entertainment company, and just kind of really puts Netflix again in one of the premier entertainment companies. Netflix has spent very aggressively to get into this space. They hired a veteran awards campaigner, Lisa Tabak, to oversee their awards strategy. And then they've backed a lot of movies from people like Martin Scorsese, from people like Alfonso Cuaron, Noah Baumbach. And frankly, they're movies that major studios aren't making anymore. They've moved away from adult dramas, from serious films in favor of kind of franchise fare and comic book movies. Netflix saw an opportunity there. They saw that that was a space that they could fill. And they believe that Oscar nominations, Oscar buzz, and even Oscar wins lead to subscription growth. And that's really how they make money. I love this line from the Washington Post, their write-up about the Oscars. It says, 2020 is the year Adam Sandler and Jennifer Lopez didn't receive Oscar nominations, and it was considered a snub. Who else was snubbed, as you could say, this year? Robert De Niro was definitely snubbed. He got some of the best reviews of his career for his lead role in The Irishman, and yet he was left out. And The Irishman Uh, itself got like nine or ten nominations. Yeah. Yeah. Al Pacino got his ninth acting nomination. You know, that's pretty rarefied company. And yet De Niro was snubbed. Aquafina, who got some rave reviews, won a Golden Globe just last week for The Farewell. She was overlooked. Eddie Murphy for Dolomite Is My Name. He got some of the best reviews of his career, and yet he came up short. So there were a lot of really great performers who deserved to be nominated, who nevertheless were overlooked this year. The Oscars are going to air on Sunday, February 9th, 2020. And once again, they're going to go hostless for the second year in a row. Obviously, we know what happened with Kevin Hart and that whole thing. So they're going to go with it again and see how it goes with no host. People were sort of pleasantly surprised by how well it went last year. It, It helped the show kind of move a little faster. And it's a very, very long night. So I think people appreciated that. But there's something nice about a host, too. It puts viewers at ease. It's able to kind of say the things that people at home on their couch are saying. Look at Ricky Gervais. You love him or hate him. He definitely generated some headlines and some attention for the Golden Globes. So from a promotional perspective, there are advantages to having a host. Brett Lang, executive editor for film and media at Variety. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks so much for having me. For one thing, it said that the vibe of a song could be based on for copyright infringement lawsuits. And that really worried people because it's one thing to distinguish between melodies sounding similar or two lyrics sounding really similar, but to call two vibes very similar is really subjective. Joining us now is Amy Wang, music business editor at Rolling Stone. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thank you for having me. We're talking about an interesting topic here in the music copyright realm. There's a lot of artists across all genres right now that have this one question in the back of their minds, is this song going to get me sued? And we all know one of the most famous recent examples, when you think of the song Blurred Lines, that was the song by Robin Thicke and Pharrell and T.I., they got sued in court and they lost. They basically said that it infringed on Marvin Gaye's 1977 hit, Got to Give It Up, and it did very much sound a lot like it, but I think in the ruling they said that it was copying the vibe of it. But Amy, tell us a little bit about how this is changing music and how artists really have this in the back of their head all the times. So the Lines case really rattled a lot of people in the industry because of what it meant for future cases going forward. For one thing, it said that the vibe of a song could be based for copyright infringement lawsuits. And that really worried people because it's one thing to distinguish between melodies sounding similar or two lyrics sounding really similar. But to call two vibes very similar is really subjective. And it set a pretty bad precedent in a lot of people's minds because then you could argue that any song channels the vibe of another and sort of collect your millions if you wanted to. You can uh, use that same argument with a lot of movies. There's no more original movie ideas right now. Everything's taken from somewhere else. And even a lot of music artists say, well, I was inspired by so-and-so years past. It kind of almost feels logical that certain vibes will mirror each other. And when that case went down, a lot of people got really scared. So because of that, a lot of record companies, a lot of artists have been having this in the back of their head. Will I get sued? And it's really changed what they've done. A lot of them are are consulting musicologists to see if there might be any similarities to anything else beforehand, before they release the music even. So a lot of labels now are being overly cautious and having musicologists who are professional, uh, who can identify the exact influences of a song and and sort of know that repertoire. They're having musicologists come in and vet the songs before they're actually released to the public, just in case. So say you finish recording your song and the musicologist comes in and is like, actually, that seems quite similar to a song in 1989 or something like that. Maybe you want to try tweaking the bridge or something like that. So that is happening more and more often as a sort of preventative measure because no label obviously wants to be fucked with a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Going back to these lawsuits based on the vibe or other rhythm, tempo, other little traits on there. You know, when these things go to court and they're in front of a jury, it's not a jury of musicologists. It's not a jury of music experts that get to decide this. It's everyday average people who might not necessarily have a refined ear as these other people who do it professionally. So there's a lot of worry with that also. Yeah, exactly. And the the thing with copyright lawsuits is that they have a lot of potential to rattle other industries, right? Like, as you mentioned, movies are one aspect of it. Another is coding or dancing. Like, when do you decide that a series of steps or a line of code is something that is protected and when it's not? And so everybody is really watching the music space very closely because that could set a precedent for a ton of other industries. You know, obviously, record labels have varying degrees of success and money behind them. A lot of people can't afford to have on-call musicologists or even consult with them. But a lot of other artists and other uh, record companies go back to that tried and true form of protection. They get insurance. It's called errors and emissions insurance. But Mm -hmm. that is also really expensive, too. Yeah, 
most major artists are insured with copyright insurance, and that's a type of insurance that can help pay out for the legal costs of actual litigation. So say you get sued for $10 million, your insurance might be able to cover a significant portion of that. But of course, that means that you're paying the insurance premium for a year or two years or however long that you've been having it, which can add up. So you're essentially hedging the cost that you'll have to spend, but you'll still have to spend money anyway if you get sued. I'm sure writing music right now must be a big mind trip, having all this stuff in the back of your head, and even more with how music production software has gotten a lot cheaper and a lot more prevalent. A lot of people are using a lot of the same elements to make music. So, I mean, you're bound to run into just things inadvertently sounding a lot alike. And it's not like with plagiarism laws, it's books or things like that where you know what the line is between plagiarism and not. In music right now, a lot of people are very uncertain. So they could be writing a song without having heard any other song like it in the past. And then something comes out of the woodwork and says, actually, you're very similar to my song. And you're like, I've never heard that song in my life, but (laughs) they might still have a case because of the way that the precedent has been presented. We started off by talking about Blurred Lines. That's a case that has already been decided. But of all songs, there's a Led Zeppelin song that's being litigated right now. I think they already had a ruling. They're going to it on appeal or something. They say maybe it could go to the Supreme Court. Who knows if it'll get up there. But this year, people are waiting for a ruling on this Led Zeppelin song to see if maybe it will clarify things or muddy the waters even further. So there already was a ruling in that case. But then a court of appeals determined that the jury in that case was misled because of some errors in the instructions. Like, for instance, they were told that they shouldn't be able to hear a particular part where they actually were supposed to and things like that. And so there's going to be a new ruling in 2020 in the next few months. And that could very well overturn the previous one or it could affirm it. But whatever happens, everyone knows that it's going to say, hopefully, something bigger about the state of copyright and at least give some sort of solid framework for people going forward rather than just having this very, very confusing space of he said, she said, this song is sued, this song gets passed, this song doesn't. Amy Wang, music business editor at Rolling Stone. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Gen Xers tended to marry later and have children later. So a lot of Gen Xers were telling me they just simply don't have time to have a full-on midlife crisis. I mean, many of them still have relatively young children in the house, so they can't blow up their lives. They just want to upgrade them. Joining us now is Andrea Peterson, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Andrea. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the virtuous midlife crisis. Generation X right now is really getting into the age range where they might be going through these quote-unquote midlife crises. There was actually an economic study that just came out not too long ago that says the peak age where this midlife misery is happening is 47.2 years of age. So right in that range right there. But instead of the traditional kind of midlife crisis thing that you hear going out and buying that sports car or parting your ass off again, you know, a lot of people are going the more healthy route. They want to do yoga, meditation retreats, and even keto diets. They want to get their health back in order. Tell us a little bit about that. So basically, Generation Xers, which are defined as people that range in age from about 40 to 55, they're really redefining the rules of the midlife crisis, this sort of period of reinvention that often happens at this time of life where you're sort of looking at the, the reality that you're at the second half of life. Oftentimes, there's sort of a reassessment of what is important to you and what kind of things do you want to sort of let go of and what kind of things do you want to spend your time on going forward. And the stereotype of it is you get the sports 
sports car. You maybe trade in your spouse for a different <laughs> model. But Gen X seems to be really going headlong into having a more virtuous midlife crisis, going headlong into sort of health and wellness. And yes, keto diets and taking up hiking and yoga and meditation. And there's a lot of different reasons for this. I mean, part of it is because Gen Xers tended to marry later and have children later. So a lot of Gen Xers were telling me they just simply don't have time to have a full-on midlife crisis. I mean, many of them still have relatively young children in the house, so they can't blow up their lives. They just want to upgrade them. And not only that, are they sort of constrained in terms of what they can do, but they're very cognizant of the fact that they want to stay around to see their kids graduate from high school and launched into the world. So that's part of what this pivot really towards health and wellness. There's also a greater understanding about how important lifestyle factors like diet and exercise, how that can really help prevent some age-related diseases like cancer and heart disease and even dementia. So there's just a growing awareness that more of your health is sort of in your control. And that's also fueling this partly as well. It is also happening at the same time that we're seeing this wellness industry blow up into billion, trillion dollar businesses all over the place. I mean, you see that with things like Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Mm -hmm. and beyond that. I mean, it's all over Instagram, even for younger people. This is definitely pervasive in the culture at large is, you know, sleep apps and Botox and there's even sort of wellness treats for your dog. So there's a whole sort of ecosystem that has cropped up that is very much poised to cater to Gen Xers who are looking to move in this direction. Another point is is that Gen Xers really can't afford to have an old school midlife crisis anymore. Older Gen Xers, you know, kind of came of age. They really entered their working years in the early 90s recession, the 2008 economic downturn is when a lot of Gen Xers were starting families or looking to buy their first home. So most Gen Xers have less wealth than their parents did at the same age and a lot more debt. Can you imagine what it would be like for millennials if you were to believe the financial stories that you hear about how millennials are far behind or so behind their predecessors? You know, imagine how that midlife crisis would even look like. And we're not, the, right. you know, and millennials aren't even a, there They yet. may even have a rougher time yeah. than, than Gen X did because also, you know, there's the skyrocketing cost of healthcare, cost of college. So costs are increasing, you know, greater job insecurity. And, you know, there's just huge amounts of student loan debt that are really weighing people down. So obviously it's a lot cheaper to take a yoga class than it is to go buy a sports car. So I think in some ways, Gen X is just really sort of ratcheting down their expectations in what kind of reinvention they can really do in midlife because of the financial constraints. And not everybody goes through this all the time. You even noted that there were some people that said, you know, is this kind of traditional thought of a midlife crisis actually a myth? Yeah, there's actually very little... I mean, it's sort of on a continuum. I mean, the idea of sort of a midlife reinvention of it's a, you know, a time when you kind of take stock. I mean, that seems to be like a relatively kind of healthy and normal kind of developmental experience that happens. But this idea of like a midlife crisis where you really kind of change your family structure, you, you really dramatically change your life and the people in it is really not supported by the scientific evidence yeah. from the experts that I talk to. So, you know, that stereotypical midlife crisis, it's even unclear how many baby boomers actually did it. Andrea Peterson, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.